Can you tell our listeners who may not know about your podcast or you a little bit about you? Yeah, I'm a American drag queen living here in Japan. I'm the host of the I'm So Popular podcast where we talk about all sorts of... Um, Decadent art movies, film, literature, pop music, and uh, seek out a new philosophy for fighting to survive in the monotony of the contemporary moment. Woohoo! Woohoo! Um, I love, um, I'm so popular. I'm a Patreon, Patreon member. And um, yeah, it's, it's really refreshing um, to hear your takes. Uh, you're really funny. Um, and we're happy to, we're happy to have you here. Arigato. I, I'm always flattered that there's just, you know, people like running around in New York or whatever, listening to the asinine stuff I'm talking about, because some of it is so incomprehensible and like retarded. So I do appreciate it. Well, I just, I appreciate anyone heavily engaged with art. Um, so I, I don't think it's asinine. Um, you did, one of my favorite lines, which I tweeted about, was you called um, Kim Kardashian a little a little fascist geisha on the animation <laughs> episode. And I, I can't stop thinking about that every time I see her. Yeah, Kim um, Kardashian is literally, like the entire Kardashian family is basically like a samurai shogunate like order. They're all like glamorous, scary, fascist Japanese warlords um, in makeup. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it fits with their like whole like people say they're Armenian witches or whatever thing. Um, deal with the devil thing. Um, when did you move to Japan? I have a couple questions for you before we uh, before we uh, get into the book. If that's okay. Yeah, I please. I, I love questions, and also no one asks me them anymore, so I'm happy to answer. I've been here for actually five years on the day today so woohoo okay why'd you what made you want to move were you well, i was were you, like were you in new york before or oh no you? girl i was like a broke ass bitch in oregon um, <laughs> i went to state school and got like an english degree and like one in creative writing i like couldn't afford to study abroad in africa which was my original thought so i was like okay after i graduate like i'm just gonna like go fuck around in another country for a bit and then i'll come back um, and I took a job in Japan that I did for a few years, and I fell so in love with the country and the men and the unique lifestyle and extremity of experience that Nihon offers that I don't foresee myself ever leaving or like going back long term. So I basically was really interested in Japanese like literature and pop culture, especially pop music, like Utari Hikaru and Idols, like uh, Morning Musume and Keikisaka 46. So um, I kind of came to like learn the language and work a bit, but then I just decided that this is where I belong, so. That's incredible. Um, were you doing drag before you left? So I did drag kind of briefly in America. I was in a fraternity and we used to do drag. Oh my gosh, to... me, me too. Oh, really? That's, that's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. I want to hear more about this. But what frat were you in though? I don't say it on the pod because it's like wow. actually like a national. 
<laughs> Mine's a big national one. I'm mine is like a legacy. My house had been on campus for I think over a hundred years, and I'm proud to say I am a Delta Ta Delta member until the day I die. Good for you. Good but for we you. used to scare pledges <laughs> by like getting in drag and like sexually harassing them with like lip sync songs. I'm just kidding about the sexual harassment nationals, but <laughs> you know. So I, I did that for a while and I was basically just um really interested in drag as an aesthetic art form that only gay men are capable of creating and it feels like a, a truly like gay man's art that can't really be replicated precisely by anyone else so i kind of um did it for identity narcissism points and i fell in love with it and um yeah i i started doing it in japan maybe about half a year after i got here I used to just do like foreigner party, like lip syncs. And then I was a hostess in Nagoya for about two years. And um, now I perform in Tokyo. That's, I mean, yeah, I, I have a lot of, uh, do you mind if I have some more follow-up questions? I want to hear every or, question. Listen, I'm, like, I wanna, I'm happy. I, I only started listening to I'm So Popular like maybe a year ago. So mm-hmm. I missed maybe some of like the lore that probably was developed. Yeah, you missed the whole Nagoya arc. I've been in Tokyo since then, so... Yeah. So lore wise, um, were you, so I guess you were obviously probably out in college in your frat. I have been out since I was 14 years old. Okay. Love that. Brave queen. Um, and so it was, so it was totally chill being gay in the frat for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that you can be gay anywhere. Like, I don't care, like, how intense it is or, like, what the vibe is. As long as, like, you just know how to sell it. Like, if you know how to kind of make yourself the funny gay clown and can offer a little bit of confidence and self-deprecation, then you can be popular anywhere. Yeah, I agree with that. I once knew this really, really flamboyant gay guy who was a teacher at a high school and a uh-huh. prison. And I asked him, I was like, like a men's prison. And I was like, what's that like? And he's like, oh, girl, like you can, it's fine. He's like, they think I'm fucking hilarious, you know? Um, And I remember thinking, I was like, wow, this like the environment I would think you'd be like most fearful of like some sort of, I don't know, backlash in. And he's just like owning it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just, I liked your, your line about how you can, you can really sell being gay in any environment if you're you know, confident and know kind of how to work the, I mean, kind of like work the crowd, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's all it takes in life is just like, um, no one's actually confident. If you just give the illusion that you are, then you are. So you can, as long as you know how to sell it, you can, you can be gay and popular anywhere. Being gay and in the frat was the best thing I did. Yeah. Um, my follow-up question was, what is the drag scene like in Tokyo? Yeah. Well, I'm sure so, it's beautiful. I mean, I can kind of only imagine, but it's it's fascinating because it's quite divided between kind of the foreigner drag queens and the Japanese queens who kind of do different things for different people. So, a lot of the foreigners will kind of like do sort of RuPaul glam, really pretty drag, um, and a lot of the Japanese queens like do like nastier, more comedic. Um, hostessing style drag so a lot of queens don't even do lip sync performances and they'll just work at a bar and be a hostess personality that lights your cigarettes pours your drinks and makes fun of you for exorbitant amounts of money which is what I used to do but um, I'm very fortunate because I've kind of broken into the 
Japanese scene a little bit. And so I do like Utada night uh, three times or three times a year or so, where we do like imitations of uh, J-pop diva Utada Hikaru. And it's really fun. The vibe is great. Everyone is just like there to kind of laugh and no one takes it seriously. It's not really like the cunty I'm going to slay when I turn my wig on my leg, bitch. Charlie XCX. You know, it's it's not like that. It's more like we're a bunch of like kind of like weird, unattractive, overweight, strange people who... Uh, or just trying to get a laugh however we can. So, But it is diverse. It's really interesting. Um, Tokyo is a cool scene, and it's very cutthroat. There's, you know, hundreds of queens competing for, like, maybe, like, five regular bookings. So it's always fresh, and everyone is, like, on their on their best game. Yeah. Um, do you speak Japanese now? Mochiron desu yo. Does that mean yes? Yes, it means of course. Yeah, I, um, I didn't know much when I came, but basically like um hostessing and my um taste in men has lent me some language ability as the years have gone on well the taste in men part probably leads us pretty easily into naomi because it's about a um so this is naomi by um junichiro tanizaki can you say it too because yeah so yeah he's a a tanizaki junichiro And um, I actually started reading this because um, Dasha was reading it on Red Scare, and I, I DM'd her and said, is it actually worth it? And she said, yes, it's incredible. So I thought it would be a good um, thing to just like read for the summer because I'm not working right now. Um, I So I guess to give a quick introduction to it um and you can add anything to just uh, before we like dive into the book itself it's a, it's kind of i was calling it like japanese lolita but it's, it's a little bit it's different than that um it's about a uh upper middle class upper class man um named joji he's 28 at the start of the novel and he falls into like an obsession with a teenage waitress named naomi um, and he's kind of obsessed with her <clears throat> kind of Western uh, Eurasian is the word they use in the translation style of appearance and dress. And she's only 15 when the novel starts and he decides to um, essentially affirm her, um, but his obsession seems like erotic from the beginning, if not overtly sexual. And then as time progresses, um, he marries her. Um, and then the novel goes into a whole kind of like psychosexual transformation as Naomi be- becomes increasingly um, the manipulator in the relationship to the point where she essentially is like cucking him at the end is the best sort of way I could describe it. Would you add anything to that? Like, like Yeah, it's the- really interesting. Uh- Tanizaki is like one of the most important like 20th century writers in Japan. And he was responsible sort of along with like um, Kawabata Yasunari and Mishima Yukio and Oi Kenzaburo for addressing like the question of westernization in the country um, at a time where I, Japan had just opened its borders um, like less than a century, basically, uh, when this was published in the 20s. And he was one of like the foremost voices in articulating 
the stresses and tensions about the slow globalization of the country. And at the same time, he was also um, sort of scandalous for being an almost pornographic writer. So the view many people have of him even now is like kind of as like a etchy, uh, um, etchy is like a, it's like, um, it's like horny writing. It's like, that. I guess that's how I describe it. But um, it's really cool because- Is it like, is it like he, synonymous with like erotica maybe? Yeah, I don't remember. I was trying to remember what the loan word is that etchy comes yeah. from. But yeah, that's basically right. So it's really cool. I think that he takes these extreme national stresses and then channels them through a highly sexualized relationship. And that kind of- bombastic thinking is so exciting to revisit um especially as japanese literature in the last 20 years has become so plain yeah i mean i also was shocked i didn't i honestly did very little research about the book until i just finished like reading it on its face um like just enjoying it for like you know the kind of like you know just reading it as fiction um yeah that's the way to read it yeah um but I was shocked when I looked back because it's, it was its original published published date in Japan was 1925, which I didn't realize. Um, I totally yeah. thought it was like a more like 60s, 70s um, novel. I mean, not because of anything specific in the novel, just because the content was so sexual and it was like hard for me to imagine something being uh, this sexual, I guess, in what I was imagining would be permissible in the, in the 20s. Um, I'm, well, that's that's the funny thing about Japanese culture, and one of the reasons I find it so enticing and why I can never dislodge myself from this country is because there is that image of uh, Japan as a very conservative, you know, buttoned up, put it under the table sort of culture. But the thing is, is that their art has been from the very beginning highly sexual and suggestive and provocative. And it's because the social culture is so intense here and you have to spend so much time working and obeying the sort of laws of peace around your daily conduct that when it comes to expressing things like eros or um, sexual romance, they really go all the way with it. And this book goes all the way and uh, 10 times further despite the publication date. Yeah, and I... Back to what you were saying about like taking kind of like national anxieties and um, you know kind of boiling it down to an individual sexual relationship. I think that you know it's after reading it, I was like, it's kind of perf- it's kind of the perfect thing to do if you think about it, mm-hmm. because like so much, so many national anxieties can be sort of uh, shown through a relationship like that. Um, especially the way they use this age gap relationship with like Naomi kind of representing this like westernization. Um, and, you know, obviously there's many ways you could like supplant it onto America too. Like, I mean, the idea that like, there's so many like, you know, bi- or interracial relationship type stories and things like that. But I don't think I could, I personally couldn't think of a book, um, that does exactly what this does, um, the American equivalent. So I don't know. It... Yeah, it's, it's I think part, part to do with the perspective of the novel, which is like a, a book that's um, very clearly anxious about a specific happening, which is that of 
a country that formerly had no foreigners in it almost whatsoever, slowly modernizing and accepting other people into the country very quickly. Um, you know, that hasn't really happened in almost anywhere else in the world. I guess like if I was to make any recommendation, I would say Tampa by Alyssa Nutting is a novel about a pedophilic teacher in Florida. And that definitely translates some of the stress as well in kind of a shocking way. But what I really like about this book is that it's so jovial and lighthearted. And unlike Lolita, which has like that menacing sort of narrative device where you are supposed to kind of hate Humbert the whole time, uh, I don't think you're supposed to hate the, narr the narrator uh, Junji. You're supposed to kind of, sorry, Joji. You're supposed to think that he's kind of pathetic and, and pitiful, but you do empathize with him. And I find the kind of like breeziness of the book to be really refreshing and fun. No, it, it is fun. And unlike Lolita, which I actually read a little bit of Lolita um, just to kind of like compare them, um, even though they're, like you said, very different novels in, a lot, in many ways. But um, it's almost like by the end of the book, it's like, I, you're almost like, is Choji even potentially a, like, I mean, I don't like victim perpetrator, like making it that simple, but you almost are like confused about who exactly is the victim or the perpetrator in the, you know, in this story. Whereas in Lolita, it's, you know, um, Humbert Humbert is like, obviously a, a monster from the beginning. It's like a portrait of a monster. Um, and yeah, and it, it's funny because like when you read the lead in first person, like he is a very like um, charismatic and linguistically talented narrator. So like you do kind of fall for him as well. But like this doesn't even preoccupy itself for trying to like bestow guilt no. or like oh like age gap or oh like she's only a teenager. Like that doesn't even come up and is not a thematic interest at all. And that was exciting for me. I loved that. Um, but. Yeah, I think there's a really, there's a lot of literature in this kind of style of like the tortured BDSM relationship and the blurring of the lines of who's in control or not. And um, there's a really good book of philosophy called Coldness and Cruelty by Deleuze, where he kind of says that all masochists are actually secretly the powerful and sadistic member of that relationship because they are the ones who are creating the terms and sort of making the sculpture of someone to harm them in a way that pleases them. And I thought this was very um, in line with that. The whole book is about him trying to sculpt her into the ideal westernized woman who can like effortlessly recite English elegantly and wear Western clothing and appear beautiful and graceful and uh, the more he creates that sculpture and like the exact image of what he wants, like the more it comes to dominate him. So it's very um, psychologically ornate, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, because if you think about it, like him in trying to create that, you know, his perfect fantasy or his, the perfect image of what he wants, it's like, really, he is the one who needs something, right? Like, he's the one who needs something very specific. And I do think that gives Naomi a lot of power. And I do think people forget that in um, all sorts of like real life relationships. You know what I mean? Because I think that what a story like this does, it, it kind of blows up what, a, what anyone's relationship is, which is ultimately like, you know, there are, there's always going to be power dynamics. There's always going to be people who are 
it, it's complicated to figure out who has like quote unquote more power in a relationship and, and making it, bringing it to the extreme edges um, really helps you see that there's like kind of a complicated interplay. But I kind of, I mean, I like that because I agree that the person who's, I guess, you know, the sadist or whatever is the one who needs something from the masochist, if you really think about it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole basis of the movement, because, of course, like, sadism comes from the Marquis de Sade, and then masochism comes from Masic, and his book, Venus and Furs, which is kind of like the first, like, masochistic erotic novel, it is all about how the person who is allegedly powerless or subservient in a relationship is actually the one who is working overtime to reform the image of their lover into whatever pleasing uh, act of violence they want. And he, Massoc and Deleuze, when they like talk about masochism, always like go back to the fact that it's like people trying to mend the relationships with their parents or like replicate it. And so when it's revealed at the end of the novel that uh, Joji is like a big old mama's boy and like has never gotten into an argument with her and like does everything she says and they like love each other like really plainly, it really makes sense uh, the person that he ends up being. Definitely. I mean, he, you know, he's trying to like, you know, put his mother into Naomi and then create a situation where he's you know, kind of more in control, but that's not ultimately what happens because he can't break out of that psychological bind. Um, do you, let, let's see, where should we go next? Should we get into... Well, I have to say, I'm really obsessed with the idea that you thought this was set in the 70s or the 80s. Well, <laughs> it's like, because they're all like wearing, they're like, oh, like, she's going to wear Western clothes. Well, the I didn't. How scandalous. And then they go to like the ball to like go like ball dancing. And it's like, I love that. Well, let me, like, be, let me be clear. I didn't think it was set in 70s Japan. I thought it was like written then. That's oh, okay. That yeah. Makes more no, sense. I, I was just imagining. The I understood. It. I wish that was the case. <laughs> I understood it was not set in 70s Japan. <laughs> I just thought like something like this couldn't have possibly have been written until then. So was- no, it's amazing. Like one of the first, like oldest surviving Japanese like literary documents is like the Genji Monogatari, the story of Genji. I guess with the tale of Genji, and that has like endless scenes of like homosexual rape um, and like sexual violence and voyeurism, peeping, infidelity. It's just like literally twelve hundred pages of like sexual violence. So it's really baked into the country's like literary perception yeah and that's i mean like by a lot of accounts that's the oldest novel in the world so it's like that's what many people yeah, say so yeah. they were sort of they were sort of like ahead of the game and even uh, yeah and even writing i mean yeah it's it's I, I guess we just i don't know why i still cling to this idea that like no one was thinking about sex or talking openly about it until the you know 60s i guess that's a very americanized um no, that's like um that that's kind of like a very I don't think that's necessarily an Americanized thought at all. I think that's just kind of what we're led to believe. But um my favorite philosopher, Foucault, he wrote in the history of sexuality that like repression was like never a real sexual concept and it's just all about how sexuality is placed into other mediums. So even if it's not like happening right in front of you it's ritualized and placed somewhere else so 
there's never been a period of repression necessarily. It's all just that the it's where the sexual desires are placed or how they're characterized or how we uh, exercise them in different ways. So that's always been sort of my thought about like, um, you know, what is and isn't allowed. I mean, clearly like, you know, when we have the like music culture and stuff that we do now, like that couldn't have happened even 20 years ago, but uh, it's just is that we're like funneling our sexual drives into different mediums, whereas we used to do that in different ways before. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't want to get, I don't want to keep moving away from the novel, but this is like just interesting to, to think about more philosophically. But one thing that I, I like, I don't know a lot about Japan. I'm, I'm going to be like perfectly honest. I actually, I That's actually great. lived there when I was um, a baby. I was like from five months old to three years old, but obviously I, I have oh, no wow. memory of that, but my parents did live in Tokyo. So Japan has like kind of had like a like a specter presence in my life in the sense that like it was referenced a lot when I was growing up, but you know, uh, not in any like I didn't learn. I, I wasn't like taught a whole lot about it, if that makes sense. But one thing that I always, when I think about it, and when I like even like kind of get glimpses of it or my impression of it as like kind of like a a, a national like its national identity is like I appreciate that like on the surface, it has this kind of like repressed sensibility because one thing that I think bothers me about like the current like American cultural moment is that like, it's so crude and in your face and it's like Cardi B telling an audience to like eat her ass and like everyone's, you know, it's like, it's just, well, I, I kind of like love Cardi no, B. I, she's, that like, wasn't a... she's, a, she's like a monster, you know, there's like, there's like, I feel I agree with you, but the way that I kind of get disgusted with, because I feel like Cardi B is like earnest and like not ironic, and like she definitely, like, she actually genuinely like wants you to what park that big Mack truck <laughs> right in her little garage right. honk. But what disgusts me is this: it's like when it's like ironic, um, like trans producers doing hyper pop where it's like fake like wet pussy like blah, blah, blah. like i hate that i much rather prefer like um like any earnesty and i do not like hyper pop sorry that has nothing to do with the book but maybe it has everything to do yeah with maybe it. i mean yeah that wasn't a specific dig, dig at cardi b it was more just that like i crave a culture where there's a little bit more uh maybe like like it's like if everything's permissible then it almost feels like it's nothing can be provocative or something. Well, yeah. And it's, it's funny too, because you can see the way that's like stressing out America because like so much is allowed or permitted and that it ends up doubling back into an even more absurdist moral panic over the most non-existent retarded thing in the world, a drag queen story hour. Like you can just like watch like the way America folds back on itself philosophically whenever it has to deal with the kind of, glut of hypersexualized culture but i've always said that the reason japan is so fun is because everyone really like divides their lives up and so when you go party in the gay district you can't you know be like miss queen at work and like slaying all day and like working on the runway like you have to like go to your fucking job and like stay for four hours late because your boss hasn't left yet and the rule is you're not allowed to leave until your boss goes home but then the second you walk into shinjuku nichome like the gay district here like you party hard and it's actually existed in the novel as well because like when 
you do kind of give into the pageant and you don't exist with regulation or like ritual around your life, that is when you start decaying and becoming decadent and nasty. And those scenes when it's talking about the multiple men sleeping in the room with like her dirty feet on their faces and like the room just beginning to stink of body odor and they're surrounded by all of her clothes. I was like gagging, like literally gagging. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that part was like, can you find a, I I pulled up a quote early in the book, but can you find a quote? Let's see if we can find one from that section of the book. Okay. Let me get through my copy here. I read the first half of this in Japanese and then I was like, oh, we're doing this today. Let me read the rest in English real yeah. quick. <laughs> so, and let me, f- I think I, I'm seeing if I have the Japanese copy on my computer. Okay, I got it. So read us a passage of where, where exactly what you're describing happens. Yeah. The sound of the rain, the howl of the wind, the snoring of Kumagi as he lay beside me. Listening to these, I dozed off at last, only to wake up again right away. The room was cramped when just the two of us were in it, and it was permeated with the sweet fragrance and the smell of sweat that clung to Naomi's skin and clothing. With two extra men in the room that night, the musty body odor was worse than ever, and the air within the wind-tight walls had that suffocating mugginess it has just before an earthquake. Now and then, when Kumagi turned over in his sleep, a clammy arm or leg would rub against me. Naomi's pillow was at my end, but she had one foot resting on it. This is so nasty. No, it's just, it's disgusting. It's like, it's like the meme. Like, I know it smelled crazy in there. Um, Yeah, it's like that goofy meme when it's like, damn bitch, you live like this. Like, it, the, I really get disgusted by the idea of like stinky women's feet. Like that is the most disgusting thing I can possibly think of. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of, of feet either. Um, so what, what can you like, just, I want to go, you were making a point about how, like when these barriers break down, like this is what happens. Can you talk a little bit, can you talk oh, yeah. a little bit more about that? Cause I thought that was interesting. Well, why not? It's just as, you know, when you complete, Foucault also talks about this. It's like the art of life is learning how to sort of regulate your desires and create an artistic system out of them so that even though you have that longing to throw yourself into the pit of like nonstop, like decadent sex and drinking and spending money and eating, you have to create some sort of system in yourself to regulate that and make an art out of the cultivation of your daily being, or else everything begins to rot. And this book is like the complete rot. I think about how at the end of the novel, um, after he kind of takes her back and decides, she takes him back, I guess I should say, but they end up moving to this expensive house in Yokohama where all the foreigners live. And then there's an Exactly. Like she makes him buy okay, first they rent out a house and then she's like, No, I like need a bigger house, girl. And so they get another one. And um then there's like a huge fire that like burns down everything and there is like massive enormous cracks in their walls, and it is a very prescient image of the house you make for yourself when you can't learn how to kind of dominate your own desires. Yeah, I Okay, so I love that. Like when you, yeah, when you let your desires run unfettered, you're going to end up in a place of like kind of rot and disgust, which I mean, I think is is true, right? Like if you 
if you're lazy, like I am sometimes, and you want to lay and you want to lay in bed all day, <laughs> like after hour three or four, it is kind of disgusting. It's like you're 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 filling yourself up with too much of what you want. You know, it's like you have to. What? Well, yeah. It's very easy to do now as well because we've never had so much convenience and luxury available to us as we do in this current moment. I'm like, I don't make that much money at my job and I they have like a nice computer, a microphone, alcohol in cans and like a nice room. And so it's easy if you're not like, you know, learning how to cultivate yourself to like lay in bed all day, like pawing at your balls, like watching fucking Minecraft videos on YouTube. Like it's so easy to like, stink in the way that like Naomi does at the end of the book but you kind of have to learn how to discipline yourself a bit. Do you think that I mean so do you think that Joji is the one who ultimately like I mean I guess like I don't want again not trying to assign blame but like whose desires do you think ultimately lead to this rot? Do you think it's like Naomi's or do you think it's Joji's? Because he's trying the whole time or at least uh, early on to cultivate her into something you know but then it's like her gluttonous desire that kind of leads to where they end up, you know? Yeah. Well, in my opinion, it is 100% Joji's responsibility without any doubt. The title of the book in Japanese is Chiji no Ai, which means an idiot's love, yeah. basically, or the love of an idiot. And I mean, if that wasn't enough, I just feel like Okay, he literally watches his, like, mom, like, gruesomely die in, like, the third quarter of the book. And it almost, like, saves him. And he almost abandons decadent Tokyo to go back to the farm and, like, escape all of this luxurious trash he's kind of sunk into. And he goes right back into it every time. He is 100% the designer of his own undoing. And I think that is a worthwhile comment to suggest that yes someone is manipulating you and using you but also you are partaking in it and i think that's something people should um, hold on to the next time they're mad at, at you know whoever's hurting them in their lives because i i do truly think that nine out of ten times um, when something like this is happening, it's because people are kind of playing into it themselves. Yeah, I mean, we construct moments all the time where we are, um, you know, like we we are we are ultimately the architects of like most of our own humiliations and things like that. And like, I I think that that is true. Like, I think we want something out of moments like that and whether we are intentional well whether we're a conscious i shouldn't even say intentionally whether we're consciously doing it or not we're, we're doing it which is kind of what joji's doing the entire time it's like the key to the door is like always in the door he could walk out at any time he could get rid of naomi he could start living with straight and narrow again but he he also he also won't he can't you know because he has this mm -hmm desire he has this 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 need for something that she's giving him i have a question for yes. you have you ever felt this intense about someone before as intense as he feels about naomi yes um that is a good question i I think maybe, I, I think I probably did in the early, I'm in a long-term relationship. I've been in it for nine years. I think maybe I felt something like this in like the first 
maybe like year or two of that relationship. Some sort of like obsessive, um, obsessive kind of, yeah, uh, elements. But nothing, I mean, not to this degree. You know, but I, I uh, obviously, yeah, because yeah, it's, you know, it's a metaphor. It's, it's a, a metaphor, metaphor. But I mean, but, like, I was, you know, yeah. I was, I was, I was only, you know, I was in my twenty, early twenties when I when I met my partner, and I was still kind of like a chaotic, like we used to call it our, I used my friends and I used to call it like our trauma bodies, you know, like sort of like a chaotic, like very like very little boundaries, kind of like leaking out of the edges, kind of everywhere, um, no. Did you say your trauma body? Yeah, I don't know why we said. I love that. I don't know why we said that, but we like referred to our like early early twenty bodies as like our trauma bodies, where there's everything. I love that. Is just, I'm gonna use every, that. That's everything great. is just sort of porous, and you're sort of like you have no boundaries, and you know it was definitely pre like kind of the sexual anxiety stuff now. So it's like I feel like there was much more like hookup culture, and everyone was sort of always like kind of like sloppily making out and. I hope the kids are still getting up to a little bit of that, to be honest. But. Well, I imagine that you you wouldn't be seeing or like doing any of that in your current junction in life. But I will say that culture is alive in Tokyo, and um, I, I I'm in my trauma body era, <laughs> so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and then when I you know when I got into my relationship, I was with someone who was significantly older than me. I mean, he still is, and. Um, Oh, he didn't get younger. I, he did not get younger, and I and I got older too. And I had to sort of, you know, begin drawing kind of. I had to begin kind of containing some of that trauma body, right? How did you do that? I need to know. I'm, well, that's. I, I mean, that's kind of what I'm saying. Is like, did I ever feel like this? Uh-huh. It's like you know, I was so obsessed with him and in love with him that like I wanted to change myself. And then I, you know, I had some friends who were like who were there was like some anxiety among some of my close friends like oh are you being controlled or is, is, there, is there something controlling about this relationship but really it was like I wanted to like remold myself into the type of person that he would um want to be with and then like you know as time went on I just naturally like matured and and kind of grew up and like you know that and so there was less of a need to like force it if that makes sense but that's that's the part that's the period of my life I could like most point to and again nothing as extreme as this but just like going from my trauma body to my kind of like to something that like felt contained enough that it would work in this more mature person's life you know Okay, girl. I'm taking notes. I'm I'm, 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 I'm learning and, and studying. Yeah. So that's that's it. But I mean, like, have I ever felt as like as a sustained years and years long obsession as Junji feels? No, of course not. You know. No. What I, the thing is is that the kind of like crazy kooky. Because there's not a single sex scene in this right. book is is fascinating, and it's so funny because we've been talking about it in this like, oh my goodness kind of way. But there's not one scene of penetration. There's no well, that's genitals. but that's what makes it's magic. But that's what makes it erotic. I would argue exactly. It's like, I agree. Yeah, because you know it's like it's like a lot of people don't realize that it's like it's like when you think someone's really hot and you know you know you're gonna have sex with them, like you know that's ultimately where the night is going. 
And then the sex itself is like disappointing in some way. And not because it was bad sex or the person was bad at sex, but it's because... Well, it's because the fantasy the died. The fantasy died, right. The erotic tension that was existing between the two of you is um, is gone, you know? And so, and that I think is like a common experience that people have. Like so many people I know talk about that. And it's like, they don't even realize that it wasn't because the sex was bad or the person was bad in bed or you were bad in bed or whatever. It was because you were excited about the lead up, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what you were actually getting off on. You were getting off on not touching each other almost essentially, you know? I think that's quite prescient. I mean, the, I think fantasy is something that really plagues the contemporary human being. Um, delusions, imaginations that are born out of the internet and a lack of socialization in young people. I think most people kind of like live in this like strange, deluded fantasy universe, brick by boring brick paramore thing where they just like have a construction of everything they want and everything that they morally believe in and then they can never accomplish that in real life. So they are permanently disappointed. And something I actually do find admirable about Naomi and Joji's relationship is that in their extraordinary regulation of how they interact with their desires, they do kind of make a way to keep the fantasy going forever. And clearly that's not how you should live. Um, The book tells you otherwise, but in some other respects, I do kind of find it um, not aspirational, but I respect it a bit. Well, yeah, they keep, I mean, the tension is like never resolved really for anyone. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, Mm -hmm. that's what they're able to maintain. I don't think they're consciously doing it. I don't think the book is implying that these people have like figured out some secret, you know? No, Um, certainly not. (laughs) Not Fifty Shades of Grey. No. A a masterpiece, by the way, but in any case. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've never read it. I probably should read it. I probably would be fun to read. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, the, I just, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's what's the closest you felt to something like this? If you could, if you could name something. Oh, girl, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, maybe it was, I'm maybe very... it was your love affair with Japan or something. You know? No, it's it's men. <laughs> it's men I no, I'm I'm a very sentimental person, and I really have a low amount of control over my emotions as anyone who's read my twitter could probably tell i like i love feeling radical things so i get carried away quite easily so i would say that i have been that obsessed probably three times um once with one of the first people i dated here once okay this is a fun story actually once i was uh hooking up with a guy in drag for like a week he was like a personal trainer in nagoya and i meant to i went to meet him for one night and it turned into a whole week affair because i was so obsessed with him and he would like go to work and i would like go and like shave and like buy more makeup at the fucking convenience store and i carried on that way for a week just to keep the fantasy going so that was one and then i would say i'm currently once again feeling that but <laughs> we'll keep that. We'll keep. You can keep that to yourself as it's go, as you're going through it. But yeah, I mean, yes. No, I probably won't. I'll probably tweet about it some more and like talk more about it on my podcast. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just. Yeah, I mean, like, kind of like 
back to the modern condition thing. It's like, I, it's like, I, I guess this is what, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to sound too angsty, but I'm pretty earnest too on Twitter as, as people know, like I do actually share my mm-hmm. like internal, um, you know, feelings a lot on Twitter. And I, I think that that's something, where was I going? Like, like if you, if you have everything you want and you still feel sort of like a hollowness it's because and it's like it's because something is like not living up to some imagined reality in your head you know what I mean and that's and that's kind of like but it's like I don't think I keep calling him Junji I need to to make sure I'm saying Joji but like that's I did, I'm doing yeah. it too because I keep thinking of uh, Ito Junji, the the, mon- the the manga writer. But yeah, anyway, that's just something like I don't. I mean, it's like I don't know. I mean, Joji obviously is being hurt by this, but I'm not sure that he feels that like, and he's being disappointed. But I don't know. Do you think he feels that like hollowness of like modernity? Do you think like we're supposed to believe? Because I mean, it, it's a book that's that's anxious about modernity, and it's like. I think a lot of people feel very kind of like soulless and hollow. I mean, that's like my. That's my yeah. impression of how a lot of people feel. But no, I think genuinely he does feel the void very deeply. And I think that specifically Tanizaki was trying to explicate that void because he had spent a lot of his youth uh, traveling in Eurasia and outside of Japan, which is very unusual for uh, someone of his time. So he came back to the country and was very deeply obsessed with Western culture. And he only started kind of souring and resolving on those feelings um, several years later, around the time he started writing this book. And there is, because in my mind, Naomi is really a emblem of some sort for the, it's, she's an emblem for both like the death of traditional Japanese culture, but also the, passage of time and how there is never any way to go back so it is kind of this hopeless futility that he feels um, because he is so in love uh, with what's basically destroying everything that makes his uh, country fascinating but he's so in love with it he can't break it off so it's does that make sense? Oh, it, actually, it makes total there. sense. And this might, this people might think this is a little cheesy, but it like makes me almost feel like this is like Japan's trauma body moment, right? It's like Japan, yeah, sure. Japan itself becomes porous. Japan itself is not drawing, you know, it's it's very strict boundaries and had drawn before. And this and these influences are sort of all like kind of rushing in, you know, and that and it's yeah, like it's like you're getting it. Exactly it's like Japan's right. it's like Japan's youth in a way, or like. What, whatever whatever Japan is now, it's that version of Japan's youth where it's sort of like mm-hmm. everything is flooding in and it's like sensory overload and like in a, in a body, in a person, that's like drugs, sex, whatever, music, you know. But in a country, it's, it's these influences, especially a country that was so isolated for so long, you know. Yeah, I mean, those decadent explosions have happened in Japan, I think probably like three times or so maybe, like the original Meiji um, restoration when they opened the country, and then um, after the um, Sino-Russia War, where Japan was successful, shockingly, like, during like World War One and like other military operations, and then the third one was after World War Two when they were like completely inhabited by uh, like, the American military and the 
economic miracle happened and suddenly Japan was one of the richest like countries in the world, like overnight, basically. And so this is a country that definitely has to deal with like the trauma body, which I honestly think is a good phrase that you should hold on to. Unironically, it's good. But it's like, I really think that this country has had to like deal with that so many times. And it's funny because across all eras, they depict it the same way, which is like white people dancing at clubs. Like <laughs> every single time. Like, oh, I mean, I was, I was thinking of like, even like pop culture movies, like Memoir of a Geisha, when you get to like that, when you, when you totally. get to like the after the war segments, it's just like drunk white people smoking cigarettes and lounging around and, you know, like partying basically, you know? Absolutely. I mean, Mi- Mishima is um, somehow both the most overread and underread author of all time. Um, it's very unfortunate that he became famous on like Twitter communities through Sun and Steel, which is like one of his like most boring and stupid books he's ever written. Because he also wrote Forbidden Colors, a gay novel about... Um, the decadence of post-war Japan in which it's like literally like the ball scenes uh, from this book, Naomi, but with like faggots mm-hmm. in them the whole time. And it is so disturbing and upsetting and like thrashing into the void. Uh, I think every gay man in the world should be required by law to read that book before they die. But yeah, I mean, the country's dealt with it a million times and it's like, uh, it's it's nice to see that because we don't really get any processing of that sensation through like contemporary western literature with very few exceptions well you i actually have never read mishima so you just gave me my first assignment because i felt like i should but i don't i I kind of like resisted it because i don't want to read it just because it's like popular on like my corner of twitter you know what i mean but no no yeah i I get it i wouldn't want to read him too if i hadn't like stumbled across him when i was young because the way that people talk about him is so fucking annoying but i would say um his fiction is deeply underread and no one actually reads the gay stuff. So read um, Confessions of a Mask and Forbidden Colors and you'll be good to go. That sounds good. Yeah, I mean, I anything that, uh, yeah, I, 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 that's that's a good suggestion. That's a good that's a good place to start. Um, let's see. Is there anything else that we want to say about the book? And then if not, we, I, we have a few other things we can chat about to get us over the hour mark. Um, no, I loved it. I mean, I loved reading it. I, I, I highly recommend it. I think, um, yeah, I, that's, that's, that's kind of my sum up and my final thing. Yeah, I loved it too. I was very intrigued when you recommended it to me. And then I had a little private laugh hearing that it was, you know, Dasha who recommended it. Cause I can imagine her being like, oh, like this Nymphette novel, <laughs> like it's very her vibe, but, um, I can I can really see her like lounging around like reading it. It's very glamorous, and you can feel glamorous too reading it. <laughs> My life has been a little bit not glamorous this week because I'm with um, A and his his beautiful children. So there's been a lot of uh, kid focused activities, but um, oh, and like diapers and stuff. And like, well, I haven't done it. I haven't done any of that. So, <laughs> but, but I haven't seen a child in maybe like six days. It's been shocking to my like, you know, kind of faggoty like day-to-day life to suddenly be in a situation that's like so um, heterosexually (laughs) focused and where everything sort of revolves around um, everything sort of like revolves around these like two little beings, you know what I mean? But they are, I guess, cute. I will say that. They are adorable. So. 
Um, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, so let's 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 broaden it out a little bit because I do I do I do sure. like to always get the pot over over close closer to an hour and a half. So what do you? Th- I mean, so you love Japan um, and you love its um, you know its kind of culture, but you're still very up to date. Obviously, I can tell from your podcast on like what's going on in America. And like, what, what do you think that there's, and I asked Jack this question too. I actually asked it, asked it, I think when I went to his live taping, um, that he did at Icarus Fest, but like, do you think that there is like a way out for America or do you think it's like just all, do you think we're just going to get Barbie until we die? (laughs) Like, do you, do you think that like the culture is like irredeemably like irredeemably <laughs> hollow and like it's just gonna be like sam smith with like you know a spirit halloween devil corns and like like do you do you think that this is what we get now or do you think that there's like well l- let's notice one thing quickly which is that you know both barbie and sam smith are kind of like cultural exports from outside the country although barbie is produced by mattel and made by an American director, Greta Gerwig. Um, its lead star is Australian. True. So, and then where's Sam Smith from? I actually don't even know. He's British. The United yeah, Kingdom. Yeah, he's some sort of British. I knew he had an accent. Yeah, but... Okay. The United Kingdom is irredeemable, and that's fucked up. That fucking island is going down <laughs> fast. Rina Sawayama and Sam Smith and all that, whatever. I don't even have, like, the emotional capacity to be, like, angry or peeved at Sam Smith and his like strange undulating hairy form on stage. Like I don't, I I can't even think about it, but that, that country is doomed. And I guess to answer your question, I would say I used to kind of think that no, the West is over. There's absolutely no interesting cultural product coming out of it. It's done for give up, move to Asia. I mean, just be exactly like me, but I don't think that. Well, let me, but I want you to continue, but I just wanted to say, just to give an example, like people like Greta Gerwig Uh and Lena Dunham, the latter of which I think is like a genius are doing Barbie and Polly pocket. Like that's what they can get funding for. (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's, I am convinced that Lena is going to make that money on Polly pocket. (laughs) I hope so. That's going to, she will. I mean, she did like, did you see Catherine called Birdie? I did. I actually went to see it in theaters. I was like alone in the theater. I was like, why is no one here? This is incredible. That's because it like debuted on Amazon. I thought that was fantastic. And that's like a fucking YA adaptation, like the lowest of low culture. And she could do that. She'll pull off Polly Pocket just fine. Um. So why do you no longer, I, I agree. Lena Dunham, I'm, I'm uh, for life. <laughs> I think she's, I, th- I think you could give her anything. You could, you could give her the shittiest script on the planet and she would make something interesting out of it. Um, what, uh, so why do you no longer feel that way? Why do you no longer feel this, like, that, like, the West is doomed, culturally speaking? I just feel like, um, worrying about it is... A little lame. It's no good. It's no good. Because politics are actually not that real. They're kind of just, like, a sexual extension of your own worldview, and that's why I really liked Naomi so much is because it's like very um, honest and straight up about the fact that this is a, a political novel with a comment about the state of the nation channeled through sexuality. And the fact of the matter is, is that basically all matters of politics is just public sexual 
discourse. It's just a way for people to sort out their innate anxieties through some malfunctioning democratic system. So do I think that the West is like culturally like fucked up and it's like completely designed? Like, oh my God, obviously it's, it's probably never been worse, but there is always something good. And when things are really bad and there is a culture of censure and silence that makes the stuff that's even a little bit interesting stand out more. And it gives you as a human being more opportunity to be a fascinating provocateur and be bold and say exciting things when everyone disagrees with you for not seeing the way things are. So yeah, it's easy to kind of view the state of things to be extremely dire and apocalyptic, but I would say turn that into a fun, cunty narrative moment. And in the same way I was gay and in a frat, like made that work for me, like make the cultural apocalypse work for you. Um, in the words of a very famous drag queen, change your costume, change it around. <laughs> so what what is working for you right now? Like, what are you really into? Like contemporary? Currently nothing. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm having a hard time at the moment. Like I'm, I've been like uh, lovesick and uh, I hated my job. But then you know what? I fucking got a new job. And I decided that being lovesick is fun. And I, I'm i very biased. Um, I think most people kind of roll their eyes. But I really do think that Japanese idol music is like the cutting edge. Of so what does that mean? I don't need, I'm going to be, I'm going to be like, told, I don't know even what that word, like what that phrase means. Like what is Japanese? Okay, what, do, you, do you know what an idol is? Like, let's start there. I know what that word means, but I don't know what it means in this context. I don't. Okay. I love that because now I'm so excited to get on my soapbox. Yeah, tell us about this. it because you've mentioned it a couple times and I, I truly I truly was going to have to Google it after the show, so. But no, that's great. And that probably means like a million other people don't know what it is. And it's like, I talk, I like am on a mission. I am like on my crusade, my holy war to bring the light of idols into the world. So basically idols are a very specific um, brand of uh, Japanese celebrity. So usually there are young girls or young boys in their teens who are in a creative agency who does all of their styling, writes all of their songs for them, produces all of their songs for them, and they are sort of a parasocial relationship that you can have with the idol. So the idea is that um, currently, at the current moment, th this concept has evolved a lot over the years, but... The idea now is that you can kind of follow these like young men and women from uh, points in their career where they have very little talent. They can't really sing. They can't. Oh, wait, oh. Can you yeah, you're me? doing great. It's still recording. Oh, okay. It's it, something, said it, it said it disconnected. Did something look weird on your end. <laughs> yeah, but it's fine. I, I, so, I can still see your voice in the thing. So, okay, great. Well, if I wasn't misheard, well, basically they can't sing. They can't dance, they can't act, and then you watch them over time learn those skills and like develop a personality through variety TV shows, through the way that they have songs written for them. And there is this really fascinating kind of like countercultural movement where people are using these idols, which are kind of meant to be like, um, you know, a parasocial thing that you can cling to for joy in a lifeless monotony. And they're using it to turn it against culture and it's like revolutionary. So there's all of these idol groups right now that are singing like songs about the discontent of society and the furious rage and wrath it takes to form yourself as a human being. And they do it in 
these extremely stylized, fascinating music videos and uh, really ornately designed like cover art. And it's so fascinating to like watch this like outdated kind of broken medium get turned around to like actually like uh, kind of like inspire the will to live. So that that's what it's all about. Does that make sense? No, I mean, I'm, act, I'm like, I, I'm going to have to go watch some of this now. I mean, it sounds fascinating because it's like, I mean, here's just my my very first initial impressions of this because I'm learning about it in live time. But what sounds so right. fascinating about it is that it's like taking what people often like critique about modern art and that it's like so corporate and it's so like structured, but it's sort of like, revealing the inner workings of that in and of itself kind of making something beautiful would you say that that's like it's showing like yeah this is constructed yeah we you know like we took this person and we made them this and we kind of showed you that process and that in and of itself is like cool you know well, the thing about idols is that like the artifice is always extremely present and you know what you're buying the whole time like you know you're buying into a corporate scheme um, for instance, uh, a group I really like at the moment, they're called Sakurazaka46, and they just had their new single come out. I did buy five copies of the single because I wanted to get every, you know, little card, <laughs> you know, like, I know what I'm buying into, but the actual art that they produce and the music is really fascinating and original. Um, this concept was adapted into Korean pop music and basically everything you hear from new jeans to Blackpink or uh, girls generation is like a distorted form of the Japanese idol system. But I, I really encourage people to look into Japanese pop music and especially <laughs> idols because um, not anything in the entire world sounds like idol music. And if uh, there's anything I find disgusting about Western culture, it's the derivative repetitive repetitious like patterns that they have like everything is just 80s or 90s pastiche um but if you listen to idol music i swear to god you will never hear anything like it and at least it's original yeah that's okay i'm i'm really excited to watch some of this after the show um that i'll send you an episode i did i'll tell everyone about it now there's an episode on my show i'm so popular called silent majority where I give the entire history of um, one of my favorite idol groups and like all the drama. Um, it had like girls who were like passing out from overexertion because they over identified with the lyrics. It has a like, weird experimental EDM. It's um, that's what I recommend. It's a great starter pack to start your journey into the most autistic art form. In all right. Way. I have it right here already, actually silent majority. All right. I'm excited. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, it sounds exciting to me just because I, I like, I kind of, yeah, I fall into that trap. I'm like, oh, everything is just like redoing something. You know what I mean? Like the dare. And I don't, I don't want to sound like so cliche. Like I understand these like critiques. Oh, but I, I'm means. speaking, I'm speaking the cliches aloud. You know what I mean? I understand. Well, you gotta, you gotta say, yeah. you don't have to make a, a comment for it. You know, everyone agrees. Yeah, but, so if it's any, Cliches are there for a reason. No, totally. Like, I was just thinking of, like, The Dare or whatever and how, like, when I listened to that album, I liked the album. I thought it was fun. But then I was kind of like, oh, it's just doing what, like, 2007. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, like, doing American Apparel again. It's just doing the hipster thing again or whatever. And I just... Sorry, you said Dare? The Dare. 
I don't know. Oh, this. it's okay. It's this band that everyone got really mad about because the cover image, like pedophilic oh. or whatever. Oh, that. That thing. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, and it just looked like an American Apparel ad from like 2007, essentially. You know what I mean? But I was just like, I couldn't even like, not that I would get angry about something like that anyway, but I, I was like, this is so silly because it's just like something, it's just, it's just prestige. You know what I mean? It's just something like, it's just mm-hmm. taking this like time period and being like, you know, let's do it again. <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, that's what happened with like fucking Dua Lipa. Like that album, Future Nostalgia, is like, is it catchy? Like obviously like, when it comes on, when levitating's on the, the club or whatever, it's like, all right, I got it. You know, it sounds fine. But it's just, is recycled garbage, like ad infinitum. Like, it just, like, that's frustrating to me. And so, in my hands, I hold um, literally 21 girls all dressed in blue fascist military uniforms, <laughs> uh, screaming about how they are going to fight so hard for their own points of view that they will literally give up their lives to do it as they are like screaming and doing like Ken Russell, the devil's thrashing in construction zones in Tokyo. I mean, there is so much interesting stuff going on if you look beyond the West. So I guess my, my general prescription, all of this is just like, try to broaden your horizons a little bit. Like there's amazing things happening all over the world. And if you can like brave subtitles or like things that are kind of like cringe or strange at first then you can um open your perspective to so many exciting new things yeah i think that's i think that's awesome advice because i think that's especially people who are like really online it's like you're just scrolling through whatever the like controversy is of the day or whatever and those things I can tell you what people are scrolling through because the scene is entirely dictated by red scare which is a fantastic artistic product that has really opened a lot of people to things that they should be reading and watching. But the sort of like column post of that show is like Welbeck, Paulia and BAP, right? Right. I agree. And that's great. All of those things are interesting and worth comment and worth thinking about. There's a lot more. And, you know, I would like if people could take like the kind of zeal that like Anna Katshian, for instance, has for, BAP and they could apply that to reading like something like Ayn Rand or like listening to Kei Kizaka 46 or Morning Musume or just like more more honestly trying to delve into the thrill of discovering exciting transgressive new art instead of just endlessly repeating takes about like trans people or like whatever or like this the political tragedy of the week. Yeah, like, they should they should you know, try I, to do what Anna does and find something and Dasha too. They both they both do this. They should try to find something that makes them obsessed and super excited and not just get obsessed and super excited about what they're excited about. I mean that's And at this you know, I'll say the person who does this best out of anyone in the entire internet scene, and it's I don't really like commenting that much on the scene lately because we're like, oh what a bore. But like Jack on the Perfume Nationalist has so much like diverse, invigorated conversation about things that you would never imagine to read. He recommended a book called Scruples by Judith Kranz that I read and like completely changed my relationship with my human form forever. It's just like, uh, I'm not telling people to like log off and touch grass, but like, like for like read a fucking book, like low key, like listen to an album, like all the way through, like do something. Yeah, no. And try to find something that like is fascinating to you. Like it's like what, and don't feel like, 
this is, I mean, this is advice I always said, like, don't, don't feel like, um, it's whatever you like, like it, like, love it. Don't feel like it's cringe. Don't be like, oh, this isn't cool. Oh, this isn't, this isn't whatever. You know what I mean? Because otherwise you're just going to be in like Mm. a sad echo chamber of like, kind of like autistically commenting on the same, literally three people that you just talked, that you just mentioned. And you're never going to break out of that. And I agree, Jack, Jack's, Jack, the way he talks about art does inspire me. Like, it really makes me realize, like, I have deadened something that I used to have, if that makes any sense. Like, the way I used to feel when I was, like, first getting exposed to things, like, in college or in my youth, you know what I mean? Like, maybe I, like, blunted Mm -hmm. that a little bit. Um, And, you know, when he got me to watch Fellini, which I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to watch a three-hour movie in Italian, you know? But, like, I did it, (laughs) you know? I have time to do it. I'm not working at the moment. I had time to watch a three-hour movie. And it's, like, when I did it, it really did kind of, like, open a little door in my soul, you know? So I just, I think people should, yeah, try try stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, that's... I mean, if if you hadn't been recommended this book, you wouldn't have, like, you wouldn't have read it. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have... have. But I also think people should seek out things that just just try to find your things too you know what i mean oh right no but totally but i mean listening to recommendations is always good because i can spin you off into new things and like tanazaki has a lot of really other fascinating books um like uh, his uh, manji uh which i have a friend here in japan it's like a lesbian story and they've adapted it into film i have a friend who i know through the drag scene who would adapt it into an opera that's really cool like i don't know it's like by being exposed to one new thing, you can find a million more things after that. And and I don't mean to, like, you know, harp on, like, Twitter or whatever, because I know we're all doing the same thing. It's like you put the take up, you say something hot and fresh so that more people like your shit and then more people listen to your podcast. Or you get that, you know, endorphin kick. But um, I just don't need to read opinions about women and men and LGBT and transgender. I'm like, what, how far does this go? Like what, where does this end? Because if it's all just fucking social politics forever, that's all there is. And it doesn't go anywhere, but you can actually apply stuff like what we read today. I mean, we talked about how we both feel really, you know, emotionally invigorated. Like we talked about like how, oh, like, you know, we have had these experiences in some degree um, that were represented in Naomi. Um, Talking about politics forever, it doesn't do that for me personally. No, it it doesn't invigorate me either. And like, I often am like, you know, I'm like, how many times can you, can you say the, like the same thing? Like, I feel that way often, like on Twitter, even with my own tweets, like I'm like, I'm like implicating myself in this, you know what I mean? Oh, sure. Me too. I'm like, how many times can you make a like, oh, BAP is gay joke? Or how many times can you make an observation about, you know, gender ideology that's, um, you know, that's like showing how regressive it is. It's like, you know, these are all things that like, at a, at a certain point, it's like, or or like you said, the, another favorite of like our corner of Twitter is like, men are like this and women are like this. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't even think it's like been like that forever. It's like a new phenomenon, but it's like very baffling when everyone is just like, men do this, women do this, 
women, this woman is pretty for this. I'm like, what the fuck are all of you people talking about, Loki? I like, I do not get it. Do people think of, is that what straight people think about most of the time? They're well, like, men I, this, women do that. Do you want to know what I think it is? Because I actually, we, we, let me we, know. I, because I'm dying for it. We an had dinner with Rad Femme Hitler and met up with her, um, on Friday and she was actually super cool. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I, you know, and she kind of does. Oh, by the way, I wasn't reading. No, no, her. no. I know you, I know you were, I know you were <laughs> mentioning her specifically. I'm just saying she's someone who I think does a good job at this because she, she does these like kind of extreme, she's kind of mocking the whole discourse with her tweets. I would argue personally. I think that, I think that's what okay. she's trying to do. Um, is she's like sort of mocking this like tendency people have by being as like extreme as possible. Like, you know, saying like all men are prostitutes or whatever. Like, it's like, I think it's, I think she sees kind of the broader picture and is attempting to mock it. You know what I mean? But anyway, blah, blah, blah. That's my defense of Bradford Miller. But, um, and very cool girl in person, chill, hot, nice. Everything people say about her is false, you know, (laughs) like, but um, at least about her IRL presentation. But um, where was I going with this? Do I think straight people think about this? No, what I think it is, if you want my opinion, and I think you're you're young. I'd love it. You're younger than me, I'm pretty sure. I'm 27. Yeah, yeah, you're a baby. So, like, um, I I think that for at least people my age, I'm 34, I think that we were kind of, you know, we were in college when the woke stuff was still, um, no one called it that then, but we were in college when the woke stuff was still kind of beginning, right? Like, in and, and it yeah. was it was fresh then, which is probably very difficult for people to imagine, but like sitting in a classroom and hearing someone talk about, you know, gender being a social construct was like really like to a lot of, even though that had been being written about for like 15 years, it, it hit, it hit like the college campuses kind of all at once in this really big way. And I think that that kind of like, you know, was blowing people's minds then, which is, this is, this is probably hilarious for people to even think about, but that is how it felt. You know what I mean? It was like, oh my God, there's this new way to think about this. And then I think that like those people all graduated from college, went out into the culture and then sort of took it to its like most kind of extreme logical end and started all these like DEI trainings and started all these like things to like kind of bring it into like the workplace because they were like, well, if this is true and this is, you can still hear me, right, Zach? Okay, I was like, if this is true and this is important, and I felt this way too early in my career, I'm like, we should be bold and like be talking about this. like in our workspaces and with our friends and like challenging each other, you know, but then it just became kind of a horrific, like, I don't even know what the word is, like self-fulfilling prophecy where it like began to eat itself. You know what I mean? And so what I see now is those same people being excited to almost re <laughs> like put back in place the, um, the, the like structures that they participated in sort of tearing mm-hmm. down in, the, in a sense of like, now it's like, we weren't allowed to talk about, well, men are like this, well, women are like this, because, you know, talking about biological differences between men and women was like taboo, right? Um, and right. so now, you know, now that that feels taboo, people are like excited to say those things because they 
they think, yeah, they think, I think that you're you're really on to they think that's provocative now right to be like men are like this women are like this because it was it was provocative before to say like well really what are the different you know what i mean so that's that's it's just a cycle is how i see it you know yeah there's a there's um a great song by an idol group called perfume and their song is called mugen rupu which means infinite loop and whenever i hear stuff like that that's what i first think uh, and the lyric is life is a loop it's an unending loop so yeah, i don't know i don't want to like bag too much like like politics or whatever because it's like i do think that there is um for lack of a better word there is a there is a correct way of thinking about things and if you're like not on board with that then like kind of like fuck off but you know uh, yeah if you get to get chained into this stuff forever it becomes quite miserable and depressing so it doesn't spark joy yeah. i agree it doesn't and no. you gotta find what really you gotta find what really sparks joy for you Right, which is why I do a fucking retarded gay show about idols and common writer and like Japanese pop singers that no one has ever heard of, and I'm like flailing to convince people, you know. But it's like I would rather do that than like show up every week to just like comment on whatever new scandal is going on about men or this, women or that, transgender.com forward slash poop. Like, I just, I can't. I don't know. I'm. I think everyone is kind of gonna wake up to that probably in this cycle in like a year or two. But well, and there's gonna there's, there's gonna be disruptors, and there's gonna be people who are coming in and trying to offer something different. Which I think you know we're both. Well, I feel fucking old guard now because like what this show you you started like last year. We're right? less than a year old. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay, for real. So, like, okay. I think, obviously, the whole scene, if you want to do, like, a genealogy on it, it's, like, you have to think about, like, Chapo and, like, Red Scare and, like, blah, 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 and then, like, the Perfume Nationalist, and then it's, like, what's next? It's, like, mean thought topics, <laughs> and then, like, what's after that? I'm, like, here we are now. And it's very fascinating to watch that Mugen Rupu infinite cycle just kind of, like, start over again and, like, see new people approaching it. So I'm very excited to find out where uh, you and A, who is still silently <laughs> voicing. He actually, he actually went upstairs to do some stuff with the kids now. But okay. yeah, no, I mean... I am excited to see where you take it because, like, you know, the directions of podcasts change and, you know, you have different ideas and the culture shifts. So I can't wait to see what you're doing in a year from now. I, I appreciate that, Zach. And um, I just, thanks for being an inspiration to me to, you know, pick up a fucking mic and say some stuff because um it's a sweet thing to yeah say. i don't um you know not everything i say is perfect not any not everything anyone says is perfect but i it was podcasts like yours and like jack's and like and like red scare of course i'm not even gonna pretend that you know it's like just people like that made me think like well you know get on the mic and say some shit see how it goes so i think that that's good for you for doing it and to do it regularly and not give up and don't ever give up, you know, <laughs> start over. Just keep going. You got this. I appreciate that. Well, I know it's late for you in Tokyo and it's very early for me um, in America. So, Oh, who cares? I'm quitting my job in like a few days. So it doesn't matter if I like, show up on time. So Woo! I love that for you. Well, thanks for getting on. And um, yeah, thanks guys for listening. And we'll, um, we'll, we'll probably, uh, yeah, we'll talk again. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Bye.